I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. Today, I speak to Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Health Policy Research at the National Institute on Aging at Ryerson University, the Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network in Toronto. In 2012, Dr. Sinha was appointed by the Government of Ontario to serve as the expert lead of Ontario's senior strategy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for Jody. So nursing homes and long-term care facilities uh, are really, you know, the ground zero for this pandemic. Uh, over a thousand facilities, I think, across the country are grappling with the outbreaks. The impact of the virus is being felt not only by the residents and their families, but also by the workers and doctors who are caring for them. Uh, let me begin by thanking you, Samir, uh, on behalf of myself and really all Canadians who are safe and at home. Thank you for everything that you're doing and for your advocacy and for your research and your evidence base and your strength throughout what must be an incredibly challenging time. Thank you. No, it's uh, no. I just say thank you for acknowledging that. Uh, it hasn't been an easy few weeks. It's been, you know, A, people always ask, how are you doing as a doctor? And I think doctors always carry a, a lot of stress just in general because we're always worrying about our patients and our colleagues. But you can imagine you add on the layer of COVID and then in the work that I do supporting both the federal and and, and, and the provincial governments uh, in terms of providing you know expert guidance and advice related to seniors in long-term care, um, this is an issue that's fallen on my lap and uh, and one that has been making my days twice as long. Um, but it's necessary, and and I feel a great sense of privilege uh, that uh, that I can try and do what I can to save as many lives in a sector that I think for a lot of Canadians um, and a lot of healthcare providers has remained largely invisible, um, something that we may have consciously ignored. Um, and now we're seeing some of the consequences of that as families, as you said, workers and the residents, you know, what this is all about, um, have been potentially put in greater risk than they need to be and how we need to get ahead of this, uh, especially in this pandemic. So you have uh, a prescription for long-term uh, care uh, outbreaks and you call it your iron ring. Um, it has. Uh, it starts with restricting non-essential visits, enabling staff to work at one home, masking all staff, testing and isolating not just the symptomatic. Why do you call it the Iron Ring? Well, it's one of those catchphrases that uh, Premier Ford um, started using uh, just about a week or two ago, saying that we recognize in Ontario that uh, our most vulnerable citizens uh, are living, you know, especially in long long term care homes, um, in retirement homes, but also living in in settings such as uh, group homes, especially for people who might be living uh, with developmental disabilities, for example. And so these are folks who tend to have weakened immune systems um, by the nature of their age or the chronic conditions that they're living with, or um, or if they're having dementia. All of these things make their immune systems weaker, or it makes it more challenging to identify uh, people who are symptomatic. Um, and that's why we've recognized that uh, when they're living in close quarters, uh, when they're working with staff who are coming in from the community who could potentially unwittingly bring in the infection, we need to build 
if you will, an iron ring around these homes. But the challenge has been that we're realizing very quickly is that in many situations, we've been seeing both systemic vulnerabilities and a lack of really understanding uh, what this virus is and how it acts um, that has been exposing a lot of the vulnerabilities that are out there. And so that, uh, that recipe, if you will, is what I call my iron ring and what I think is absolutely needed uh, right now. But also uh, a fifth thing uh, has been that governments like Ontario uh, only weeks ago also recognized the importance of supporting families to do what's right for them. And that means making sure that we have flexible policies so that we're not penalizing families for saying we want to keep our families out of these homes right now, our, our loved ones who may be offered uh, offered a bed, or we want to bring our loved one home because we feel that it, in our particular case, it would actually is something that we could do, we'd be honored to do, um, and it's what we want to do. So it's also the idea of honoring the choice and recognizing the autonomy of people um, who we don't want to put in harm's way, and we want to really respect their own decisions as well. So, if you will, that recipe, if you will, comes to five points right now. And it's one that might need to be augmented as we learn more about this virus and better ways to protect people living in these situations as well. So, let's talk a little bit about um, each element. So, restricting non-essential visits. What get, get, Give us some context for, for, for what might be non-essential visits. Yeah, so when we talk about a non-essential visit, uh, and this is, this is one of the hardest ones that I grappled with, because it's basically saying that we don't want anybody coming into the home unless you're working to provide care, or you're visiting a family member under exceptional circumstances, such as your loved one is actively dying, and we don't want them to die alone. But this means that we're saying that, you know, the, the partner that would come in every day just to socialize with her husband of 75 years, for example. Um, we're saying uh, you can do that via the phone, you can do that by a visio visit, but I know that for you, for each other, holding each other's hands is really important, but we need to restrict as much movement in and out of these homes uh, because that's a way that can inf that can bring the virus in. Um, and so that was one of the ones that I, I grappled with the most because we're not saying we, we, we don't appreciate the value of a visit, uh, but this is where you have to have those priorities of saving a life versus um, uh, uh, about supporting someone's, um, supporting the things that actually do matter, um, but saving a life could trump that, if you will. So that's what we mean by restricting visits. And that's why we're also saying that in some situations like retirement homes uh, in Ontario, we actually have people living in these situations where they might be receiving care from workers of the home. They may be paying the home to provide care. They might actually be paying their own workers that they found privately to come into the home and provide care. Or in many respects, people are receiving care from multiple home care providers that the government uh, finds through various agencies. But we have one home, for example, in Hamilton, which is an example of many homes across the province, where you might have dozens of workers working for multiple agencies coming into the home every day. And this is an opportunity for introduction of the virus when we're saying, wouldn't it be better if we have a handful of people who are actually given full-time wages and benefits, believe it or not, uh, so that they don't have to 
to waltz off to seven different homes to make it make a daily wage. But if we actually consolidate the care and actually give people full-time work, we actually not only improve the lives of those workers by better supporting them, but we're also actually uh, making sure that we can we can restrict the foot traffic. And so that goes into that other piece um, about why we want to try and make sure that we limit workers to one residence, because that's been a huge issue that we've been seeing across the country. Yeah, the non-essential visits is really hard because, you know, in some respects, I think the long-term care model is built a little bit on there being concerned family members who might assist with, you know, feeding of meals, not not someone who is, you know, receiving their nutrition via a tube, but, you know, people who just take a long time to eat or just may need encouragement to eat. Normally, that's a role that uh, a family caregiver would provide. And happily so, right? I, I, I've supported so many families to make the difficult decision to transition their loved one into a home. Often, you talk to these family members who up until that point, we're providing 24-7 care. Um, they were trying to balance work and unpaid caregiving duties. Uh, they were relying on what the government could provide through uh, home care or other services or what they could rely on with their own savings. And often there was this breaking point where I would actually have to sit down, you know, daughters who were crying in my office and saying, I know you feel like a failure for now having them go into a home, but you're not a failure. You're a hero. You've been doing this work, but it's killing you. It literally is killing you. And by doing this, by letting them go into the home, it allows you to return to being the wife, the daughter, um, where we're not saying that you shouldn't be going to visit them anymore, but you can, and you can still help in many ways, but we're trying to do something in a way that best supports your loved one, but also you to be the best that you know you can be and 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 so it's that that's why i struggled a lot with this restriction of essential visitors because while it sounds very simple um it sometimes is that social connection and that support um the touch of a loved one who's been familiar to you for all your life um that when you take those things away um and while we try and we try and replace it with a video call or a telephone call, for example, uh, or a, a visit through the window. While those things are helpful, um, we have to realize that with certain things that we do to try and protect lives, uh, we're also doing things to um, affect the quality of care, um, the quality support that we're providing to these individuals who are frail um, and close to the end of their lives as well. So enabling staff to work at, at one home, you, you you were touching upon that, uh, you know, looking at, um, uh, I guess, the, the, the human resourcing of, uh, of long-term care homes, retirement homes. And I know this is actually also a challenge uh, in home care as well. What, what, what are the obstacles to us getting to a place where um, staff only work in one home, at least for this pandemic period? I think it's not even, I don't think there are really much in the way of obstacles. I just think it's really the public being aware of what we've allowed ourselves to do um, in creating what, what many are calling now a systemic vulnerability that, you know, we've made a choice to pay taxes to expect, you know, a well-functioning healthcare system. But I have a line that I use with my colleagues that often says the further you walk away from a hospital, uh, the lower your wages become. Uh, and so what we're seeing is that 
in Ontario, for example, 80% of homes were before the pandemic were having trouble recruiting staff. I mean, that was just, and that's something that we're seeing in BC in most provinces. And why is that? Well, um, you have people who apply for a job in a home, and the majority of people working in long-term care and retirement homes are lucky to get part-time work because with full-time work becomes the obligation of benefits, benefits like paid sick days. But it's cheaper uh, if people can just hire you on a part-time basis because you don't have to give all those other things. And so really it's created this underbelly where the a, a woman, it's mostly women, um, immigrant women, um, who pick up these jobs, uh, it's and their work, um, you know, similarly would be paid with full-time work and benefits in a hospital setting. But for many of them, they have no choice but to work at multiple homes to make a bunch of part-time work without benefits, including sick days, equal kind of a full-time salary. Uh, and this is challenging because then you also understand that not only um, are we not providing a stable workforce in these homes, hence we have massive turnover that occurs because if the job opens up in a hospital, you'd be an idiot not to take on that job that actually has those extra things. But the other challenge that we have is because people are working um, between multiple homes, for example, uh, they actually become vectors of, of transmissions. And we've actually been seeing this. It's been well documented by the CDC. We've seen this in Ontario. We've seen this in, in, uh, in BC as well, that a worker who was infected and they got infected in the community because there's widespread community transmission, brought it into one home and then spread it to another home. Um, and that's why we've said that we want to limit uh, movement uh, of staff. But I think what BC has done has been tremendous, and Alberta has just announced they're coming forward too, and I've been working closely with our ministers in Ontario to say, I really think it's not a matter of just recommending that homes do this, but mandating that homes do this. Um, and that's basically saying we want to limit staff movement to one home. But I'm saying, and that should come with full-time work opportunities if people want them, benefits like sick days, because here's the other thing. When you don't give people in these environments sick days and their choice is to stay at home and not get paid and therefore not be able to buy food for their family as a member of the working poor, we're then saying, what would you do? And what I would do is I would come to the hospital or I would come to work. I would try and work through that sore throat because frankly, I have bigger choices in my life that I have to make. Um, and nobody wants the cars harm, but what would you do if you were in that situation? And that's why things like sick days work really well in the hospital where many of my colleagues are happy to take a day off knowing that it's not a risk of pay. But for a lot of workers in these environments, I, I had a, a CEO call me the other day of one of these homes who just said there was a woman who had a high fever and she was demanding to come in. And when they said, you can't come in, she just broke down and cried at the entrance to that home because she said, if I can't do my work today, I don't get paid and I can't put food on the table. So this is the reality of a system that we've allowed to develop across the country, a system that is not governed by the Canada Health Act and a system that we are designing to be staffed by people in these situations who are caring for the most vulnerable Canadians, 400,000 Canadians in this situation. And if anybody listening to this thinks that this is acceptable by any means,
you know, I ask you to think a bit further because it isn't. And I think this might be the opportunity to recognize how not only is this bad for us to support people during a pandemic, but it's just not acceptable, um, even uh, when we're not in a pandemic. So I'm hoping that the moves, and BC has basically said, we're moving to this model in the pandemic and after the pandemic, we're done. You know, we're stopping this nonsense. This is where we're going. And I think that we should be thinking about this across the country, but this is a province to province and territorial decision because the federal government has no jurisdiction at this level of care. Well, thank you for giving that, that that broad context because it really is about people, right? We uh, and and just reminding folks, it's not it's not that anyone shows up to work to to cause harm. <laughs> it's but you know there there are pressures um, that that uh, that take choice away uh, for for people. Um, turning to the issue of masking all staff, do facilities have have the supplies they need to safely provide care? And this is a challenge, right? I think this is that um, that that struggle that you have between um, balancing the evidence and balancing the practicality. And so, this is why um, I'm happy to not be a politician, but rather just being an expert advisor, because it was about two weeks ago now uh, that we actually saw the evidence loud and clear that was coming out of the CDC in Atlanta, where they were basically showing that we know that there's such a high rate of asymptomatic presentations uh, in, in these homes and amongst workers, for example, that we really should be requiring staff to mask. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that's the idea that by, by having the staff themselves masked, being masked, they're not actually uh, going to be as easily passing the virus on to their own residents that they're caring for and to each other. And so many hospitals that actually had adequate PPE supplies across the country, like my own uh, in downtown Toronto, um, started masking our staff weeks ago. Uh, yet, uh, while it was clear that we should also be doing this in retirement and nursing homes across the country, uh, this is where the chief medical officers of health were aware of this evidence. Uh, but at the same time, it's tough when you don't necessarily when you're trying to manage a provincial PPE supply, a national PPE supply, and realizing that okay, well, while we know that that's what the evidence suggests, if we start giving masks out to everybody because uh, we know it will save lives, the challenge is is that we might run out of PPE and then we we might lose more lives, and that's a decision that I don't think anybody has been taking lightly, but things have just gotten so out of control so quickly in, in these homes, which are basically tinderboxes, that now with over a thousand homes, you know, Ontario, just as of Wednesday night, uh, this past, uh, I think it was April 7th, I can't even keep track of dates, um, they immediately put a new order saying we have to staff, we have to mask people immediately. But they also note in those orders that they appreciate that they're, that a home might not actually be able to get a supply in the grand scheme of things or might reach a shortage. Um, and we can't penalize them if there is nothing available for them to do that. But what I've been advising the ministers that I talk to is that even if we can't do something, uh, we should still at least make sure the guidance is there and it's clear so that people understand that when we can get masks in these places, this is what we should be doing as opposed to being silent on the issue. And so, again, I say that 
it's easier for me, and I appreciate this being an expert advisor, um, saying this is what the science says we should do. I don't envy, you know, kind of Prime Minister Trudeau and, and our Minister of Health or, or, or at a local level, our provincial ministers uh, and, and premiers when they're actually looking at the numbers and realizing that this has been a challenge, especially when it's not just Canada competing or the provinces competing, um, but we're competing against giants like the United States and countries all around the world who are struggling themselves. So it's not easy, but that, that's just kind of a little bit of my two cents on the whole masking issue and uh, and where the evidence um, sometimes struggles to meet with the practicalities of implementing a recommendation. So the last element, test and isolate, not just the symptomatic. So that's testing uh, not only uh, residents in retirement homes and long-term care homes, but also the the healthcare workers that are coming into the homes, yes? Yes, and also visitors, for example. So, for example, what we've been seeing, and and this is data that comes out uh, from, say, the CDC. So they did some beautiful studies, uh, which were, I mean, works of art, in my view, uh, that were needed to be done. And and while I think the CDC hasn't been given the opportunities to provide the leadership it capably has provided in the past in the United States, what I was glad was that a valiant group of researchers um, and their research arm were able to recognize the vulnerabilities of long-term care and retirement homes. And they did um, just some phenomenal studies that really, I think, have been a service to the entire world. Uh, and so this was the data, for example, the dispatches that I've been eagerly reading as soon as they come out, uh, that have basically shown us that when the virus enters a home, it might come in by a worker, it might come in by a family member. Um, there's some way in that which it gets into a home. And the idea that we're starting to see when they were doing these tests where they were actually testing everybody in a home, workers, visitors, but also um, the residents themselves on a daily basis, things that we shouldn't be doing practically, but things that you need to be doing to get a good study um, and good clear data there. It actually showed that in, in the first home where there was an outbreak on day one, there was a case of a staff member. Day two, there was actually a resident infected. By day 14, there were 167 people infected, not only 101 residents, but also about 50 staff and 17 visitors, showing that that home actually becomes a vector of transmission to other facilities via the staff, via residents, for example, but also can be a vector for community spread. And the example that I point to in Canada is in Bob Cajun, where one of the victims uh, was actually the wife of one of the residents who used to volunteer at the home to come and feed her husband, for example, something that was essential in that case, but cost her her life. And that's why we know that not only can it spread quickly amongst those three populations, but when we actually do test residents in these studies, they were showing high rates of asymptomatic presentation, basically meaning that we try and look for people who might have a dry cough and a fever, 
But we're also realizing that in these homes, for example, there are many residents who, for example, might also have atypical signs by virtue of being older and having weakened immune systems, where they might not be able to mount a fever because their immune systems are weak. And so if we're only looking for fever, we might miss people who can't mount a fever. So that's what we call atypical presentations, in where they might not mount a fever, but they might be more visibly confused than usual. And we're saying in those cases, test them too. We're also saying that if there's a person who's living in the room of someone who's infected, but they're not showing any signs, we've been seeing cases of asymptomatic uh, presentations in rates of 50 to 75 percent. Uh, and that sometimes is because 70 percent of the people living in nursing homes in our country have dementia. And if you didn't remember what you had for breakfast, how are you going to be able to stop your care worker and say, um, I'm feeling a bit feverish or I have a bit of a sore throat. Do you think this could be a COVID-19 symptom? They can't do that. And that's why we're seeing potentially high rates of asymptomatic presentations. That's why Ontario's guidance that just came out uh, on Wednesday night was guidance that I was able to help influence, which really gave clear guidance on saying not only test and isolate those people who are symptomatic, but also think about any recent visitors and staff in that area and other residents who may have been connected to that to that um, area of infection and make sure that we're aggressively testing and supporting those people too. Because if we miss cases, this is how it can start spreading like wildfire and why we have homes uh, throughout the country where we've seen what how this can get loose very quickly and spread very quickly and then cause an unnecessary number of, of infections and deaths. How easy is it to isolate a patient in uh, long-term care homes and in retirement homes, uh, like from a physical design perspective uh, or and service delivery uh, perspective? How, how difficult is that to do, to accomplish? Yeah, no, this is this is one of those things where you talk again about the practicality versus what the guidance actually says. And so some of the dispatches that people have been reading, you know, coming out of Bob Cajun, for example, is that Pinecrest itself is one of these older homes that's in need of redevelopment. And uh, and the challenge is, is that some of these older homes, for example, where people could be living and even in modern homes, people could be living in four bedded rooms, two bedded rooms or single rooms, um, obviously the newer homes that are being built um, that offer these accommodations are built with much bigger footprints, which means that people are more well-spaced apart and uh, and it's more easy to isolate. But when you're in a small crowded room, like some of the older style rooms that were at the Bob Cajun home, that again, were built to the ministry specifications decades ago, if you will, um, this is where it can become harder to kind of isolate and separate. So I was having this exact conversation with one of the ministers this morning about saying, you know, should we remove people from the home then, or how do we protect people? And I said, you know, well, this is where now that we know not to treat this like a flu outbreak, but to treat this like COVID-19, um, this is where in hospitals, for example, we're designing COVID wards or COVID rooms, if you will, where we're clustering people that we know have COVID together, and we may actually cluster people who don't have COVID separately, for example. So it's by implementing good um, isolation practices, you know, even in smaller and older crowded homes, there are things we can do. But, you know, one thing I was pointing out to our minister uh, was that 
a challenge uh, is is if the staff are calling in sick or they're or they're forced to stay home sick now because they might have been positive contacts. Um, other staff don't want to come in. These are the dispatches we're seeing now where staff are walking off shift or they're just refusing to come in um, or they can't come in because they're genuinely sick. Uh, all of a sudden, it's not very easy to keep up to speed with infection protocols and that when you're trying to figure out how do I feed and clothe and care for a whole bunch of residents when we're short-staffed. And so this is why, again, it comes down to there's the guidance that's now very, very clear, and there's the practicality. And that's why I think in Quebec just um, just a few days ago, uh, where they announced that they had almost a half of their nursing and retirement homes in outbreak now. Uh, the minister was basically compelling local hospitals that we had done such a good job preparing for um, for a surge that didn't really translate in the way they thought. Um, now saying, look, I've got doctors and nurses who are sitting idly by in some of these hospitals, so I'm now going to deploy them just so these homes can actually um, survive and their staff we can appropriately staff them so that we can at least um, do the work that needs to be done. So this is something that we're now starting to see hospitals in Toronto uh, starting to look at how they can be resource partners, if you will, to uh, local homes. As, as we're seeing that in Toronto, we have one hospital in outbreak surrounded by 19 homes in outbreak uh, right now. Um, and this is where if we truly un understand that it's not respectfully, and I can say this because I work at two of the best hospital networks in the country, um, I respectfully disagree with the fact that Sinai and UHN are the front lines. Um, the community is the front line. Um, people staying in their homes are the front lines. And people living in these homes and the workers that are supporting them are the front lines. And if those, if, if, if people don't physically distance themselves, as we've been begging people to do. And if we don't support people in these homes in the way we need to do, the people in the community and the people in these homes are going to end up either dead or in our hospitals. Um, and this is why we have to recognize where the true front line is, as you characterized right at the beginning, and why if we need to bring in reinforcements, literally, if I'm using, you know, war-like terms, this is exactly what we need to do. Because when that front line falls, um, then, uh, then, 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 the last resort of the hospital uh, will no longer be able to cope with what we assume will be a surge of community cases within just over a week or two from now. So I'm glad you brought up this concept of the front lines because it's it's something that I've been thinking about as well, although coming at it from, from a little bit differently. So Archie Campbell uh, in uh, his uh, report, uh, the SARS Commission report uh, in Ontario, talked about a precautionary principle. And and that report talked about that principle in relation to healthcare workers. And that was appropriate because uh, SARS was predominantly a hospital-based outbreak. But I feel like we need to apply that precautionary principle to our elders, to seniors. And I think we've been a little bit slow to make that mental transition. I think so, and and it, it troubles me as to why we've been so slow. And I and I really feel that we knew about this from the early dispatches in China. I remember 
doing the early interviews with CBC National and, and other outlets, for example, where they were asking me these questions as to, ah, it looks like the elderly are the most affected and, and children seem to be spared by this. And what are your comments on that? We knew this back in January, for example, but it seemed to me that a lot of our emphasis across the country was about making sure we have lots of ventilators and making sure our hospitals are well prepared. But it just seemed that long-term care and retirement homes uh, were kind of not really at the forefront of everybody's minds. And and it's been wild, the conversations that I've been having with some people where, where you know, people say things and people have said these things to me like, well, you know, don't people go into these homes because they're kind of near the end of their lives? And I've called people out immediately saying, why are you making that statement? Um, because it seems like that statement's only leading to an ageist attitude where these people are somehow less than, their lives are somehow less than, the, these, these sectors are less important. Um, yeah, we, we, we don't value the elderly in our society. We never have. Um, we don't value the people who work with them. Otherwise, we'd actually dignify them with full-time work and benefits the way we dignify the people who work in hospitals. And I think this is where this whole issue of ageism, and even, I even call it, I don't even know if this is a word, but I'll make it up, uh, here it is, sectoralism, where we somehow value the jewels in our crown, our hospitals, um, and certain types of professionals versus others. You know, we... Someone said to me the other day, it's, it seems that we're always honoring on the news, you know, the doctors and the nurses at the front line, but really it's the personal support workers and the registered practical nurses who truly do all the heavy lifting in these environments. And are we equally praising them and their work? But they tend to be hidden uh, as, as these people who are behind closed doors in these homes down the street that we don't really pay much attention to. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I, I feel like we've, as a society, this has kind of exposed, you know, some, some issues that we really need to be um, coming to bear with. And, and it's funny because even just the other week, um, I've been very vocal and a little bit of a lone voice, if you will, uh, saying that uh, we need to you know, I don't know if everybody's, you know, because people ask me all the time, like, Dr. Sinna, do you think my mom is safe, you know, in a nursing home right now? And I say, well, if they're doing all five things, you know, that, that I, if they're doing the four things that I've just talked about, then, then absolutely, I think they're doing the best they possibly can. But knowing in my heart that not every province and territory is doing that, I couldn't look one of my patients, I have many patients in long-term care and retirement homes, or their families, um, and actually lie to them and say, I believe they're absolutely safe. But, you know, I was blind actually publicly, which was so disappointing, by my own professional society saying that I was being reckless with my comments and how dare I do that. They did that very publicly. Um probably to score political points uh, for some reason or not, as opposed to reaching out to me and asking, why are you saying these things? Help us understand. Can we help you advocate? Because, again, I think none of these colleagues, for example, are ones who have maybe worked in long-term care. I don't know, but I but I do. Um, I have. Um, and I support this sector. And, I, and, and so it's one of these things that I've had the greatest privilege of caring for, um, residential school survivors, um, Holocaust survivors, um, who've 
reminded me very carefully in, in, in the time that I've been caring for many of these folks over the last 10 years, because we have the privilege of getting to know them and caring for them and listening to their stories and their experiences. And one thing that they've said to me time and time again is that silence kills and that you will see terrible things in your life. And as a doctor and as a doctor who's well-known across the country, you have an enormous amount of privilege. Um, and don't ever um, stay silent when you see injustice happening because silence kills and silence equals death. And, um, and so it's been really hard for me personally uh, when I'm dealing with this sideshow of political or personal attacks from people trying to score points when I'm trying to focus on the mission of saving as many lives um, and supporting my colleagues who I'm grateful to have as workers and colleagues at the front lines in these environments because frankly um, not of them a lot of them don't have the privilege of having a voice that can be heard um, and I don't regret anything that I've been doing and oh my god I don't want to come out and say to anybody look with what we're seeing in Quebec, I told you so. That's not what this is about. This is about valuing the lives of every single one of these Canadians, ensuring that everybody knows that these people are never less than or anyone's. These are these will be us one day. These could be us one day. These are our parents. These are our neighbors. These are our aunts and uncles. And they deserve everything that we possibly can give them because any of us might be in this situation one day and we would only hope that we'd have someone advocating for us as well. Well, thank you for your advocacy. I think it's really important. And, you know, policy people don't show up to work, you know, with the aim of uh, doing harm, right? But I have to say, and and I'm not a clinician, you know, the Samir, we, we, we work together. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by, by training. Um, so, you know, I look and I say, okay, well, as recently as a, as of, you know, July, 2019, we had this inquiry report um, as a result of um, the wet buffer inquiry. Um, the regs were reviewed as part of that inquiry. And of course, wet buffer was, uh, you know, a, a, a serial killer who also happened to be a nurse um, committing her crimes in long-term care facilities. So infection control was not the focus of that report, but, but the regs were reviewed and the, the legal structure um, in the report was, you know, deemed quite sound. And, you know, so, so that's kind of fact number one. And then fact number two is, is what, is what you mentioned um, earlier that we heard you know, reports coming out of Wuhan that the elderly were disproportionately uh, impacted by this virus, that the mortality rates were were very, very high. Um, so, you know, we have to have this discussion, like, like what broke down? You know, it, 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 it's not a simple case of, you know, bad regs, bad oversight, um, uh, or, oh, we didn't know. Um, in many ways, these long-term care homes are just non-floating cruise ships. That's what it looks like today. Um, so, so, so we absolutely um, have to have uh, these conversations. So thank you for that. Um, I, I, I want to cover two quick points before, before I let you go, if I can. One is, um, you know, we try to be policy-oriented here at Canada 2020. Um, are you able to speak to what the the pace model is, um, and and is that model followed anywhere um, in Canada to, to to the best of your knowledge? 
Yes. Yeah, so, um, so pace is a, is a wonderful model that uh, I'm a huge advocate and champion for. And our National Institute on Aging over the past year, actually, um, has been uh, leading a policy series called The Future or Enabling the Future of Long-Term Care in Canada. Um, and so people can find that on our website and, uh, and, uh, and to understand this model in particular. And it basically is the idea of a virtual long-term care program. So in the United States, uh, what they started with this program it started a group called Unlock, uh, which was a Chinese uh, community organization in San Francisco. And they basically said that um, if someone's care needs reach a certain level, we'd have no choice but to institutionalize them into a long-term care or into a retirement home, for example. And what, um, and what the what the PACE model did was it actually allowed uh, uh, this community organization to get the same amount of funding that a person would get um, to be living in a nursing home, but then it gave it to a community agency who was responsible for providing medical care um, and home care and supports to give these people an alternative, but allow them to be flexible and creative. And that model now is, has, has, has spread like wildfire through the United States, uh, where basically it's a model that works particularly to support people who are poor and people who are old. So they're dual eligible Medicare, Medicaid folks. But the, but the point is, is that the model really gives agencies and communities the opportunity to be creative and flexible to better support people uh, in these situations as well. And so this is a model that we don't really have in Canada for a whole bunch of reasons, but we do have promising examples that we pointed to in our report, like the prime model in Manitoba. Um, there's the choice model in Edmonton, where again, they're, they're, they're trying to be creative and, and, and the models have been working. So I've been working behind the scenes with our Minister of Long-Term Care in Ontario and our Ministry of Health because, uh, you know, politicians eagerly uh, feel that when we have thousands and thousands of people on the wait list, uh, that the easiest thing to do is build a nursing home bed. But the challenge is, is that if you ask any of your listeners who any of you aspire to end up in a nursing home, nobody says yes. But this is not a political statement. I can tell you this because all three political parties in the last Ontario election were promising to build beds, more beds for everybody, um, beds that the actual public don't want. Um, and so I've shown the government itself that if we don't build a physical bed, you're going to save $150,000 in construction dollars. Um, and if you actually just give the same equivalent amount of money to a local community agency that provides home care and medical care, et cetera, and we do have those agencies well in line in place, if you can create an option that people can look at, an option or an alternative to uh, uh, bricks and mortar nursing home care, uh, we could probably support tens of thousands of people in this model. And this is what countries like Denmark um, have been doing um, and other countries in, in Europe that have been far ahead of us in this thinking as well. So I actually think that sadly, this pandemic, um, which is going to kill thousands of people in long-term care and retirement homes across the country, um, will probably force governments like Ontario that have made a promise to build 30,000 beds to maybe rethink that, because I don't know how many people are going to be racing to build beds that people don't want to go into anymore unless we correct the systemic vulnerabilities that exist. Um, and it might actually be the one silver lining that comes out of this is that we can be more progressive in our 
long-term care and retirement home policies so that we can truly enable things that ironically are both cheaper and more in line with what people want and from a pandemic standpoint probably could actually end up having less people dead at the end of the day. Gabrielle McMillan, a volunteer and past president of Life After 50 in Windsor, Ontario, said, I think we're finally seeing what seniors are experiencing. Being in your house, not being able to just get up and go when you want to go. Um, I, that was profound for me. You know, here we are sitting in quarantine, and this is what many of our seniors and elders experience every day. Can you give any suggestions to our listeners, you know, even if we personally don't have someone in a long-term care home or retirement home, how can we help ease the, the loneliness and, and the difficulty that, that uh, folks in, in these uh, care uh, environments are experiencing? Absolutely. I, I saw that too. And it was one of those, and there were some funny things happening on Twitter where people were saying, for all of you who never appreciated what social isolation feels like, now you know. Um, and it feels awful. Um, and so you can imagine when we have about 25% of older Canadians who tell us they don't have a family member or a friend close at hand to help them with a basic task like getting a prescription, you start realizing how isolated many older people in our lives are and how how that can lead to things like what we call social, uh, not only being socially isolated, but loneliness and depression as well, which they say is the equivalent to smoking 10 cigarettes a day. So it's one of these opportunities where, again, you know, you may not have an older loved one um, in your life, but many of us do. And they might be living in, in a retirement or nursing home, or they might just be living there. They're that, it's that old lady who just lives down the street, for example. Um, and so I think it's an opportunity for us to reflect and realize how scared many older Canadians are because they know there's a virus that has a much greater chance of killing them than many of us, um, that they're isolated um, and uh, and they're struggling. And what has been absolutely um, upsetting to me um, and to so many others behind the scenes is that we are seeing a tenfold increase in the number of, of, of reports about elder abuse where people are taking advantage and calling seniors, for example, preying on seniors saying, give me your credit card over the phone and I'll get you some groceries. Uh, it's just terrible. So what we've been basically saying is we've been trying to promote something that's been promoted in the UK called viral kindness. Um, and on our National Instant Aging website, we actually have a, a copy of a postcard, but you can make one of these yourselves. And it's one of these things where if you know that there's a senior down the street, they know you, you know them. Um, and so there's some basic trust there. And don't feel guilty that you just ignored them for the last year. They know you, you know them. Um, it's a lovely little postcard that someone called Becky Wass in, in the UK created in her own act of social isolation. And she made these cards that basically say, put your name on it, put your, put your phone number, just let people know who you are. And it was a little checklist saying, do you need any help with getting groceries for you, doing this, doing that? Um, and it's a way that you don't have to do anything crazy. It's just a matter that you can create an act of viral kindness, if you will, um, that can allow that senior who's scared and isolated um, and worried down the street. Um, it can give you them that opportunity, or it might be an opportunity to say to that local home, um, do you have anybody there that I can do a, a window visit through, for example, or is there something I can do by just volunteering with an agency to give a friendly telephone call? Because 
in times like this, it's just that need for human communicate human communication and support that are more important than ever. And so, I just now that we're starting to, and, and obviously, I'm I'm hoping that everybody listening to this really is thinking about the seniors in their lives or the seniors that they know in their lives that they may be able to support in one way or the other. Um, I'm hoping that again, more more acts of these sorts of kindness can be some of the positive outputs we can, because, um, again, if we put ourselves in their shoes, we would hope that someone's out there uh, looking out for us as well. Dr. Samir Sinha, thank you for your advocacy, for your insights about a better way forward, your smarts, and particularly, especially, your viral kindness. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jody. <laughs>